Welcome to Amplify Your Process Safety, the podcast that provides the experience and expertise you need when it comes to process safety and risk management. Our hands-on approach will give you the insight needed, whether you're new to industry or process safety, in a role where you interact with aspects of process safety, or an experienced process safety professional. Join us in our mission to protect people, the companies they work for, and the communities where they operate by making process safety knowledge available to all. podcast listeners and welcome back to the Amplify Your Process Safety podcast. I'm Molly Myers and I'm here again with John Doan. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing good. I hope you all are doing well and we're going to talk today about our top 10 best PSM practices or our all-stars. So why don't you kick us off with the first item, John? The first thing that sticks out to my mind is usually just a site-wide team tasked with establishing or maintaining a PSM program for the major elements inside the PSM program itself. So it's more like a divide and conquer approach instead of just having a PSM coordinator who's in charge of all the PSM elements. You kind of divide and conquer where someone's managing maybe the mechanical integrity aspects of it on the fixed equipment side or on the reliability side or even on the instrument and electrical side. Other side is usually similar is the MOCs and the PSSRs are being managed together or the PHA and compliance audits are being managed together or someone that has the recommendations and in charge of following up on the recommendations, making sure they're being done in a timely manner. However, it is, it's, you know, as long as it fits the program or how it, it fits at the company, it's really good to kind of see that divide and conquer. So it's a lot of people, you know, working, working as a team to get the job done. Um, so so that's just a single person trying to carry the whole burden. Yeah. And if it's depending on what you're doing, the process, it's just overwhelming. And, you know, sometimes it takes a team to do it. So it's good to see that. It's probably one of the things that's up there for sure on the mm-hmm. best PSM practices or all-star practices. It's done a lot, but sometimes you see some newer PSM programs who just think maybe one person is enough to do the job. But in reality, it should take an entire team. It takes right. a village. But that leads into my second part is just perform those quarterly audits on those few PSM elements to make sure you're doing what you say you're doing. You know, why wait every three years to check on how your program's doing? You can check it either a monthly basis, quarterly basis, or semi-annual basis. Pretty nice to kind of figure out, hey, we, you know, been struggling with this the last quarter instead of waiting, oh, we've been struggling with this for the last three years. So <laughs> it's, good, it's good to kind of like get a pulse in there, just see how things are going. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, get get was, a little uh, shorter uh, feedback cycle going, and if you sure. if you split it out, you can do you know one or two elements in a month or quarter or something like that. And it doesn't have to be a really deep dive, but it can be a quick look at how yeah. things are going. And then if you see problems, then obviously you can spend a lot more effort on it. Yeah, for sure. So that's my number 10 and number nine, just divide and conquer into your PSL elements. And number nine is just to make sure you're checking it on a more frequent basis so you don't have to find a big problem every three years. All right. Well, then moving on down the list to number eight, we'd have kind of a knowledge sharing among different sites within a company. So if you have say three or four different sites that have similar processes, you can 
share knowledge on a lot of different aspects. One good example is PHAs. If you have similar processes, your PHAs should have some similarities. They're obviously not going to be the same. You can't just do one PHA and assume it'll cover everything else. But if, for instance, one team comes up with a hazard scenario that may not have been thought of before, they can share that scenario with the other sites and say, does this apply where you're at? And it may be a case where somebody had overlooked a deviation scenario and one team came up with it and it's a good learning for all of the rest of the sites. Also, you can kind of benchmark and say, well, if we have this type of a pump failure in this service, we would consider this to be a consequence four or a consequence three. And these are the types of safeguards that we would expect to have and carry that over to all of your sites and all of your yeah, PHAs. For sure. And it's a lot easier, especially as a third party PHA facilitator, when someone goes from that corporate oversight where it says, oh, any fire, or any explosion, we classify it as a, you know, let's say a five. Right. Whatever, whatever the value is. So it's just nice to kind of go, well, it already kicks you in here for, from what the standard is. So it gives you a lot of consistency, which is oh, yeah. I'm a fan of. Oh, me too. And then also there are other learnings that you can share among sites, including incidents. If one site has a process safety incident and comes up with some recommendations, it's good to share that learning with the other sites so that they don't have to experience the same problem. Same thing goes yeah. industry-wide, but sometimes companies are reluctant to share incidents or near misses outside the company. But you should certainly share within your company at different sites to make sure that you don't fall into the same trap elsewhere. And then yeah. just general technology transfer, especially if you have similar processes, get those people, whether it be operators, supervisors, engineers that work on those processes together, introduce them, maybe even have some cross-site collaboration so that people get to know each other and are more comfortable picking up the phone and saying, hey, you know, we're having this problem. Have you ever seen this before? Or this catalyst was, you know, causing problems that we didn't expect or things of that sort. We had a temperature excursion and this is what happened. This is what we did about it. This is the interlock that we implemented. Share those types of things among people within the different sites. For sure, for sure. And I always see it more as there's no reason to reinvent the wheel if someone else in your organization knows it. So uh, it doesn't hurt that ask around or just share it just so that someone else doesn't spend you know, X amount of hours trying to figure out a solution when there was already a solution in place. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, exactly. Number seven. Number seven for me is PSV management. I feel like a lot of people kind of just rely heavily on PSVs or safety relief valves or relief valves, however you call it. I think they're very useful, very important. But a few practices I've seen to make, you know, make them all stars is one of them. I've seen people, you know, do a really solid car seal program where they their numbers match up and they have a nice exchange program. So you kind of see the paper trail of, oh, these were removed then or replaced for some X amount of reasons. The other ones I've seen is companies X-raying that area to make sure the valves going into the relief valves are open. So you can kind of verify, hey, these are in the right positions. Exactly. Um, yeah. And some other ones, just like on the paper side, is just 
you know, double checking the relief valves are sized for all possible scenarios instead of just a basic thermal expansion or a fire case. Right, or uh, cross-checking specific scenarios from a PHA. If you had a deviation of a loss of reflux, make sure that you've got that scenario sized in your documentation. For sure, and that's one of those things I ask all the time when I'm on, like a, like you said, a reflux. It's like, hey, if you lose reflux, is your, are you going to be cooking your tower? Is it sized mm -hmm. for it? And usually I end up waiting five minutes to kind of have the engineer double check to see if it's, you know, reviewed or not reviewed. So right. very valid. Uh, last one is, you know, conduct a pop test when your PSVs are removed to provide data for adjusting inspection intervals. Right. So you don't necessarily have to service your relief valves if you choose to just replace them. You know, that's a valid approach, but you should still pop test them so that you know were they still functioning as intended when you pulled them out? Or do you need to maybe shorten your inspection cycle next go around? For sure. And that kind of gives you an idea if there's a failure mechanism occurring in that process line. So I have seen somewhere they do, you know, they don't have a means of testing or at least tracking PSV failure. So they'll use it as a near miss where it's like, hey, we, our PSV failed the test. So we'll document it, keep track of it, see how frequent it's going, see if there's a correlation behind it right right okay well that leads into uh number six and for this one we would say uh, open communication and ownership between your company and any contractors that you've got on site don't treat them as you know second arm's length <laughs> yeah second class citizens make sure that they are in the loop on information that pertains to them that they understand the process and the hazards that they may be exposed to when they're working at your site. Make sure that you communicate with them when conditions change. Make sure that they're part of the team and you treat them as such. I agree. I, when I see when you kind of empower them or give them responsibilities, they take ownership to it and kind of just try to make it their own as well. Um, it helps them try to be better instead of, you know, not wanting to listen to you because, you know, you said something to them. They're like, I don't want to work for that guy. Exactly. And and then they're more likely to point out any concerns that they might see or bring up near misses and things of that sort that otherwise they might have felt a little uncomfortable sharing. So you definitely uh, bring them in as part of the team and have very open communications with them. Next up is number five, and it uh, pertains to operator training. So you've got to have initial training for your operators. And some of the best practices I've seen involves a combination of classroom training, hands-on, and job shadowing, in addition to just reading the SOPs. But if you bring in like subject matter experts on for instance, pumps or distillation or whatever other technologies that you're utilizing and give them all the background, show them cutaways of the equipment, explain failure modes, explain troubleshooting, give them all of the tools that they need from a general perspective and then get into the specifics of the job with some review of the SOPs, then do the job shadowing, have them follow somebody, observe them doing the job, understanding what's going on, 
and then let them start doing hands-on with oversight. So it's a long process, but it gives them all the tools and the background. Additionally, make sure that your operators that are selected to be the trainers, you know, there's somebody that is shadowing them, make sure that they are the best of the best that you've got on operators and they're interested in serving in that mentor role or teaching role so that they will take somebody under their wing and really take ownership in teaching them the ropes and the safety ins and outs of the process. So that's our uh, number five is uh, training. So what do you have yeah. for the next one, John? All right, number four for me is fostering cultures of reporting both good and bad practices. So I've seen some sites where they go, what's wrong with this picture or what's right with this picture? And it encourages employees, contractors, operators to submit of pictures of hazardous, unsafe conditions or submit pictures of things they handled correctly. So if you saw like a dirty workspace or something that's done incorrectly, you take a picture before, correct it, take a picture of afterwards to kind of see the before and afters. Um, and that really promotes of like taking ownership of that process unit of that area. And it keeps the operators engaged during their walkthroughs. You know, they might be right. kind of bored, complacent, but when you have this program in place, it gives them a nice, you know, makes them want to look at for more. So there could be some nice, you could review it during safety meetings, you know, and give the, the reviewer or the person who submitted the pictures a award for, you know, going above and beyond or sometimes maybe just doing their job. But fosters, you know, good reporting, good communications and just kind of taking ownership of I see something, I'm going to fix it. Um, right. But also gives us, a, you know, a, a way of just making sure there's not a bad trend or maybe there's a good trend going on. And you, you want to. Also, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. So having that scene in the picture is really telling if, for instance, you know, you've got a ladder that doesn't have the right slope on it or not tied off or somebody is adding the raw material without the right PPE or more importantly, they actually do have all of the right PPE on when they're handling some hazardous material. Yeah. So, and sometimes yep. it's good when you have it at like a safety meeting, someone new is like, oh, I didn't realize it's not supposed to be like that. I just thought it was like that all the time because that's what I've seen the last 90% of the time I've mm -hmm. been on site. So it's nice to kind of relay that message of this is what good looks like and this is what we should strive for. Right. So that kind of leads into number three, which is making sure that you address concerns, whether it's from incidents, recommendations and all those sorts of things is obvious. But if you have like a employee suggestion box or mechanism for people to submit uh, concerns or improvements that need to be made, make sure that those get addressed, even the small things shows that management is concerned, they listen to the employees, they take the concerns seriously, and they take action. That goes a long way towards encouraging a good process safety culture, is if sure, you address sure. those small items in addition to the big ones that, you know, come from PHAs and whatever other sources. And then number two would be including senior leadership, plant managers, VPs, people of that sort in your PSM program and actually leading enforcement or encouragement, uh, lead by example, have them really 
expect compliance with all of your PSM programs, expect people to give their all, expect people to submit all of their near misses, all of their concerns, follow the batch records, follow the documentation requirements. So have those people at a high level of the company fully engaged and visible on the shop floor and in the meetings and participating is uh, key players in the PSM program. For sure, for sure. There's a few times I think when, a, you know, the bigger booze ask questions PSM related and because they asked about it and were intentional about the question, I was like, oh, that person's paying attention. I should not be, you know, lollygagging or like brushing mm -hmm. it under as trivial. Uh, so kind of, it doesn't have to be like, you know, on a witch hunt for anything, but just paying attention and showing that you're paying attention it kind of right. does echo. The last one I've got, I think it's pretty important these days now is just implementing technology to the fullest extent, especially everything we're doing these days. I feel like it's just wired through some sort of technology. Um, but, you know, one of the big things that I've seen in a good PSM program or an all-star practice is just fully integrated software systems for like their management of change, their recommendations, their action items, communications, training records, mechanical integrity. Just seeing all that kind of just helps because there's a computer in the background either keep storing it, planning, or just like shooting out messages, hey, you got some stuff to do, or this is mm -hmm. what the planning should be. But the integrated stuff just helps kind of organize it, especially with all the data we're getting. It's just, you just need someone to help manage the data and kind of get right. the data well, correctly. Have, having those integrated programs is nice because you can look back at the history. If, for instance, yeah. you have an incident or a near miss and it's tied to a MOC, well, then you can go back and look at that MOC and figure out, well, what changed? How did this get overlooked? Did somebody answer an assessment question saying there was a no impact and that was not correct? And then you can tweak your MOC process to make improvements and not let something like that slip through the cracks in the future. So those fully integrated programs are really helpful for managing elements of PSM. Yeah, and I've only grown up with systems like that. So I don't know what it's like to be paper-based. Maybe I was lucky to be raised <laughs> in the later half of it, but yes. it seems like a lot of work to try to hunt down everyone to just sign off on NLC, like just run it. Right, or run it right, right. The, the paper-based systems are harder to keep track of, things tend to get lost more easily, and following that history is is challenging. Yeah, yeah so, I can only imagine it getting stuck on someone's desk because they uh, got a bunch that, of papers. Boy, that did happen, yes. So, <laughs> um, so another piece with utilizing technology to the fullest extent is equipping your operators with technology in the field. So technology is getting better at having the right electrical classification so that you can take things like iPads or phones or digital tools like that out into the field, even when you've got electrically classified areas, you know, class one, div one, div two, so that you can utilize those. And I've seen ones where they may have barcodes on key pieces of equipment. And so if the operator is doing their rounds and they notice a leak, they can pull up an app on their device, scan the barcode, that's for the pump. They can write in the work ticket right then and there in the field, say we've got a leak of such and such on this pump, and it goes straight to the maintenance department. 
or if there's a question, they can pull up the PNIDs and say, oh, okay, that's what this connection is for. That's where this is coming from. Now I understand what I'm looking at in the piping here. Or they can pull up the SOPs if they've got a checklist to fill out and they can fill it out electronically and initial it right there in the field as opposed to writing it down on a hard copy or doing the action in the field and then having to write it down on the batch record when they get back to the control room. It's right there in their hands and they can take care of it at that moment. So that's gotten a lot better with the advent of special enclosures and electrical ratings for some of those electronic devices to carry out in the field. Yeah, great technology right there. The last one I've got is more of kind of just all that stuff that Molly was talking about, collecting all that data, but using that data being collected by either operators or by the maintenance techs or just by the engineers is just using those informations to kind of maybe determine your own failure frequency information to help refine your PHA or a low reliability data. So if you feel pretty confident and you're like, oh, you know, the book says control valve failures happen what once every 10 years yep. or so, you could say, no, we've seen this or we've been tracking this for the last 20 years and we've seen it to be one in 15. Or it could be like, oh, we've seen issues in that surface, it's one in five. So you right. kind of have a better data of what to expect of, you know, how it's reflected instead of just using industry practice. So I've seen some companies do that and it's been like really impressive when you hear about it. Um, mm -hmm. You have some business analysts just looking through SAP, just grinding, looking through numbers and kind of just correlating it all. It's really cool. Don't know if a lot of companies are doing it, but it's a great way to kind of refine your PHA. Right. So anyway, that was our uh, top 10 best practices for uh, PSM, our all-stars. So we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a comment about this week's episode or an idea for a future episode, or even a question about anything process safety related, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a voicemail message using the link in our episode description or shoot us an email at podcast at amplifyconsultants.com. Yeah, if you have any hot takes, we'll love to listen to it. If you disagree with our top 10 or you want to add to it, let us know. We'll love to see if we've missed anything. Our goal is to save lives by partnering with companies that handle highly hazardous chemicals to create world-class process safety systems, as it is our firm belief that these systems will help to prevent catastrophic incidents like fires, explosion, and toxic release. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us if we can help guide you on your process safety journey. If you want to listen to our other top 10 talks, check them out wherever you listen to our podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, be safe out there. Bye. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Amplify Your Process Safety. Head to our website, AmplifyConsultants.com, to find our show notes and other resources. Thank you for joining us in our mission to ultimately save lives by advancing process safety right here on Amplify Your Process Safety. Until next time.